You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, Family Secrets family. It's Danny. Last week, I had the pleasure of being part of an ongoing series produced by Penguin Random House called Two Writers Talking. The writers in this case were myself and Bob Kolker, author of the blockbuster Hidden Valley Road. Bob and I were moderated by New York Times journalist and critic Jennifer Senior. The subject? You guessed it. Family Secrets. I'm excited to share this special bonus episode with you. And remember, April 1st, we'll be dropping a whole new season. Between now and then, though, we have a few surprises in store, so keep your eyes and ears out. What were you most responsive to in each other's books? And they may or may not have had to do with secrecy. I'm happy to go first, if that's all right. Thank you, Danny, for the chance to talk with you about your book. I, I really was... Uh, was blown away by it. I, I thought that um, the the part about it that really struck me was the sort of the the two reactions that you had to this news about your about your biological heritage. Your first, the first thing you do is you look in the mirror and you wonder if you're still yourself. You know, if this you're wondering how this news actually changes you, and then the ripple effects start and you start to wonder if the information was there all along and you've only uh, willed it away. You know, that remark your mother made several years earlier, why didn't you see that? 
and and several other clues that you almost willfully uh, didn't um, uh, didn't notice. And I, I recognized that in the family I reported on in, in Hidden Valley Road. You have you have uh, children who learn uh, more and more secrets as they get older. The the mother in the book, Mimi Galvin, she she tends to let loose new pieces of information when her back is against the wall. So so the revelations keep coming into her nineties, and uh, after a while. Uh, they're so whipsawed by all the new information, uh, they start to wonder if, if the, in certain cases, if there are things they should have known all along, if they really had been trying to assemble a narrative. And it's this assembling of your own personal narrative that interests me the most and how fragile it can be. Bob, I had, I had a very similar response reading Hidden Valley Road and um, thinking about the ways in which, which I loved, I, I cried multiple times. Um, especially toward the end, the sisters, uh, the two, the two youngest children, the only girls in the family, um, are, I think, the ones who grapple most, each in their own way, with what they didn't know, what they might have known, what what each of them, uh, you know, there's a conversation that they have fairly not early, but like in the middle, in the middle of the book where uh, one asks the other, did this happen to you too? I don't know, spoilers, but you know, did this happen to you too? And uh, the answer is no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then way later as adults, they have the same conversation again. And the answer of course is yes. And, and, and the sister who was asked that doesn't even remember being asked that. And so there's this way in which I think that family secrets um, or, or secrets in general, the toxicity of them renders them, like Jung calls secrets psychic poison, right? So it renders them um, something that we may know on some level, but can't touch. And the family in, in Hidden, Hidden Valley Road is, just, is full of so many secrets that ricochet off of each other and can't touch each other. And you know, in my case, inheritance is 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 a is a memoir, and it's it's my own story. But because I have written nine books prior, I actually have a body of evidence for what I actually knew, but couldn't think because it's in my fiction, it's in my earlier memoirs. It's like the thing that was always there that I was digging for without knowing that I was digging. I, I, I really did not consciously know it, but I now see there was a trail of breadcrumbs. Danny, what was that uh, term that you had, uh, the, the psychoanalytic term, unsought? Is it the unsought known. Unsought um, known. Is, uh, coined by a, a psychoanalyst named Christopher Bolas, who's written a great deal about it. The unsought known, which is just one of my favorite phrases ever, I think, is really defines what we absolutely in our gut, you know, in our, um, you know, we know it, but we can't think it because it's too dangerous. So you mentioned that Jung had this, Jung, who, by the way, had a psychotic break and may in fact have been schizophrenic himself, which is an interesting through line through all of the, um, you mentioned that Jung talked about, um, called secrets, psychic poison. 
they're good for books though, right? I mean, they, they're, uh, I feel like some of the best literature is about deceit, if not all of it. And so I am wondering if you, before we dive into your books, if you have favorite books about deceit um, and if you think s- secrets are at least useful in helping structure a narrative, you know, I mean, if you were looking to the, uh, anything in particular? They certainly offer a surprise ending sometimes. And <laughs> in, 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 um, in Danny's case, a surprise beginning in Inheritance, but the uh, sort of like the end of a mystery. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I look back on many years of magazine writing and writing, you know, crime stories, and I see more and more stories about families in crisis and quite often with information that's been tamped down because of scandal and then comes out again because of the narrative that I'm writing about. So, you know, I wrote about a young man who was on trial for a gay hate crime. And in the middle of the trial, he stands up and declares that he himself is gay. He comes out of the closet and reveals his secret. And um, one woman's life being molested by her father culminates with her murdering her father and then going on trial so that the secret she couldn't keep closed up forever. Um, I, I think about it a lot in terms of its narrative power, but um, and, and I see it everywhere. When I started reporting on the Galvins, I thought about American Pastoral, which, you know, has a has a family calamity that that feels so hard to explain, but it's also quite scandalous and and secrets are kept. And then uh, the 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 parents or the father in particular is searching, you know, what it, what is it, you know, in the past that might have caused this? What secret relationship with his daughter might have triggered this? I think it's an effort to find clarity and an effort to write the story. Um, you know, I had listened to to a, the, a bonus episode of Family Secrets with with Bessel van der Kolk, who is no relation to Kolker, and um, but but he said something that really really hit me about, and I'm going to mangle it, but it's about trauma as a story that can't be written. So so the you know your effort to write your book and the Galvin's determination to tell their story is is to me, it's a way of moving through trauma and to try to give it a, give it a, if not a happy ending, at least to help it settle down a little bit. I love that. Um, and the um, Bessel's, the quote is, um, it's a nature of trauma that it doesn't allow a story to be told, which is ah, why when that. we're, when we're traumatized by something, all of us, our, our, our first instinct is to tell the story again and again and again to whoever will listen. Um, because we're trying to we're we're trying to contain it, and it's like water like running through our open fingers. It's it feels impossible, and of course, you know, narrative ultimately like finding a way to shape trauma into art, you know, or you know, chaos into some kind of you know shape or clarity is um, the work of literature and the work of life, I think. But you know, people ask me all the time about family secrets and my podcast and my like do I go hunting do I do I go searching for my guests and you know I don't because the stories keep on coming and they are very often wonderful books uh that either I you know I find them I read them I know them or the authors are friends of mine and I suddenly think oh that would be an Nick Flynn. That would be an amazing story. Or Jenny Boylan. That would be an amazing story. Or Tikira Madden. That would be an amazing story. Kiese Lehman. That would be, it could go on. I mean, it's just it's why there are so many writers on my show. It's not because it's 
a literary podcast is because the the work I think that writers do of finding a way to take a secret, a trauma, multiple secrets, multiple multiple traumas, and shape them so that then, you know, what we have is not only the mess, but the transcendence, you know, the redemption in some way from that, the 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 turning it into something that um, has meaning and that will have meaning for others. That actually, excuse me, I, it's funny, written right on my sheet here as the next thing that I wanted to ask you is what do you, what do you think the hardest thing is about writing about family secrets? Like what, what makes it, what are the biggest challenges? And I think that each of you are going to have very different answers. Obviously, Bob, you were trying to earn the confidence of the family and you are, Danny, this is very personal to you. So Bob, I mean, do you want to go first? I mean, I, it's going to be idiosyncratic and it's going to vary from story to story and what vantage point you're telling it from, obviously, but for, for you in this project, Bob, what was it? I certainly believe, certainly believe the stakes for Danny must have been very personal and very yeah. high as you're writing about friends and loved ones. Whereas with with me, I'm I'm encountering these sisters who are the first people I met in the family who are determined to be transparent. They want to smash all the secrets to bits. They want to be in the open. But I am, you know, I'm not them. I'm 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 a reporter, and so I need to make sure that uh, they trust me. But more importantly, I need to talk to everybody in the family to make sure that I'm telling an accurate and fair story. And that took a year before I before I even got the book deal, uh, talking to various family members, because I was very skeptical. I, I was convinced that uh, one family member, at least, would stand up and say, you've got to be kidding me. I don't want my family secrets in a book. And um, I hadn't been prepared for just how much the rest of the family would defer to the sisters, and also how optimistic they were that they had something to to tell the world about the science of mental illness and and about how they move through their traumas as a family. So I was happily surprised uh, when they did it. but but it the the biggest risk is that you um, that you betray betray that trust or that or that you you skew it in some way where it 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 quite clearly is a self-serving uh, work of journalism. I had to be removed enough from the situation so that I didn't uh, I didn't write something too um, con- you know too completely flimsy, but I also wanted to report as intimately as possible about these people's thoughts and feelings. So that was my challenge. Bob, can I ask you why you think that they all really did come on board? that that that's so unusual that they all did. Was it was that out of a, a kind of sense of duty in a way to the two sisters, or was it also, as you you touched upon, like in the name of science, that there was this extraordinary opportunity to, uh, you know, for the world to learn something about schizophrenia? And can I just jump on and also say, was there? I can't remember anymore. Was was who was the toughest sell? If there was a toughest sell, <laughs> I'm, I mean, there were three or four things. But- the first was that that most of the horrible events in the family had happened 30 or years ago or more. So I, I hadn't really considered how, how long ago the events were. The second was deferring to the sisters who were the youngest in the family. And so older brothers who were had left the house earlier felt guilty, frankly, that so much had trickled down and things that they never knew happened had happened to the sisters. Family secrets had happened to the sisters. And so they said, okay, if they want it, then that's fine. And then there was... 
uh, late-breaking scientific information about the family's genetic uh, code. Uh, two different groups of researchers found out two different things that were really stunning all at the same time. And then finally, the big one is that Mimi, the mother, was on board um, for the first time. She was not interested for a very long time, but she was around 90 now and in very frail health. And everybody thought it was now or never. And I think the scientific breakthroughs were very validating to her. It made her, you know, it, it made her feel comfortable saying this was genetic. This wasn't my fault. And so she was fine talking to me about about uh, what she wanted to talk about. With me. What was toughest for you? I mean, Danny, this is going to be a very different. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And there, there were a couple of different layers. I, one and both of my parents were gone. Um, and people have sometimes asked me how I think the story might have been different if my parents were alive or if one of them um, had been alive. If my father had still been living, there wouldn't be a book. Um, I, I just wouldn't have written it uh, while he was living. Um, he, I believe, very much um, wanted this to stay buried. It was something he was both of my parents were going to take to the grave with them, and they did. And then I, I remember when Inheritance was about to come out, and the first piece that was published was in Time magazine, and it was a big thing. And there was this photograph of my dad and me um, on the beach, happy, like playful, loving photograph. And when the piece came out, I had such a pang because I thought, like, that young father if he could have had a crystal ball and seen a future where his, this secret that I think was so deep that he perhaps was even keeping it from himself, that that would have been there in a magazine that he read, you know, religiously every week, uh, there for all the world to see. I was, I was just very aware of the, that was painful for me, but it also felt to me in terms of like, well, what right do I have to tell this story? I have grappled with that in other books. With Inheritance, I never grappled with it because it literally felt like the story of my life. Like this was that I had a right to tell it and to explore it and to, you know, go deeply and, in, in, you know, as a journalist into, you know, the history, who, who were my parents uh, before I was born and what was the world that they lived in. But the other piece of it was I discovered my biological father and um, he, this is not a spoiler, I mean, he had been an anonymous sperm donor as a 22-year-old medical student and was very conscious of his privacy, as was I. And from the time that he and I started having any contact with each other, it was very clear that I was going to write a book about this. I mean, it was it was the book that all, everything else had led to. Um, and I was transparent about that with my biological father and with his family that I you know his his wife and the kids that I was in touch with. But when I promised that I would protect his his identity, and I worked very hard to protect his identity. When I finished the manuscript, and before it started going down the pipeline toward being published, I did something that is such a memoir 101, you don't do this, but I had to, which was I sent it to him. 
and I asked him to read it really for a sense. I wanted to know that he felt that, that I hadn't missed anything, that there was no little tell in there where somebody who really wanted to and became obsessed could figure out who he was. Um, but I think I was also looking for his blessing, uh, which I which I received from him. I received an extraordinary long letter back from him after he had read it with a list of all the things that he liked, some of which were things that were very tough in the book, um, but really saying, I feel that you've been fair. This reflects my experience too. And he felt that his identity had been protected. So that was that was this piece of that process that was very different for me because even with my own mother, when she was living and I published earlier memoirs, I did not submit them to her for her approval before uh, they came out. I love the part in your book where you infer, I'm sure correctly, that they've Googled you, you know, the, your, your, your biological father and, and his family, that, that, that they all, and, and I just imagine, you know, with a smile, them saying, oh my God, she's going to write about this. You know, there's totally. no way she's not going to write about this. Which I, kind of I puts the brakes on everything for a little while. Yeah, I mean, I think initially when, when I think the reticence about having any contact with me was like Oprah could be lurking in the bushes and jumping out with a camera crew. Yeah, it was like, wow, this is great. She's a writer, how interesting. Oh, this is terrible. She writes about her family and identity <laughs> and yeah. Although I had this thought, that like that happened and then they started reading you and they were like, oh, <laughs> but maybe this will be wonderful. And mm -hmm. maybe this will be just the thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, he clearly is one over. Like he's, he, he understands how everything is so well considered in your writing. So he, he gets it. Yet, um, yet it's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Because what does it mean to be, and I was very aware of this when the book came out, you know, he was just about 80 when the book came out. And this very private person, and it was kind of you know he, it was kind of hard to miss. He would turn on the TV, or there would be a magazine, or and these things I think were a little intense because it was also a story that was in a way part of his story too. But he was certainly choosing anonymity, and and I was offering it um, so. On a human level, I mean, it just, I mean, he and I have spoken about it, but we'll never speak about it publicly, I don't think. But it's just an interesting mm -hmm. thing to grapple with. And we were all Googling each other like mad. Meanwhile, so, your father, like the man who brought you up, is is all over inheritance. You know, he it's yeah. dedicated to him, your your uh, relationship with him and your new thoughts on how you how how will you relate to him now that you have this news it's something you wrestle with so openly and, and cogently all the way through it really um it ke i feel like it keeps coming back to him uh, it's another part that really struck me thank you yeah and when people ask me my i the dedication page of of inheritances is it's books to, dedicated uh, to my father and I don't specify which father, which uh, like because of course I didn't specify which father. Of course it should be apparent that I have one father. I have one dad, uh, and that's the dad who raised me. But people would bring that up. And I'm like, no, that's the whole point. Can I just yeah. point something out? You said, of course it would it should be apparent. 
<laughs> that's no, I mean, it's just one of these weird oral accidents. That's not an accident. The, um, uh, you know, you were talking to, this is going to apply to both of you. And I think it's going to be the final question actually, before we go on and look at some of the audience questions. But um, so Danny, you obviously went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that, you know, your biological father was um, comfortable with this. And you probably had some instinctive sense of what you owed him. What do you think we owe the people who actually, in our families, who might deceive us? Like, what do we owe them? It's got to be a question you've wrestled with. And Bob, I mean, certainly the two youngest sisters had very different approaches to what they believed they owed their families. So I think I'll, I'll leave it on that. I think it's. And Danny, you also are, now you're an aficionado of, of family secret stories. You've seen, you've talked with a couple dozen people now who've been through revelations and found new ways to interrelate with their family. Um, in, in the case of the Galvins, um, the, in the beginning, I, I met the sisters together and I thought that perhaps this would be a story about two sisters who huddled together and made it through a very difficult childhood, that, that they could be some of the people we would root for in this story as, as they grow up. And then once I interviewed them separately, I found that they were quite different people, that they had had many years of closeness and then many years of not so closeness, that they had been through very similar traumas as children, but had processed them differently. And I was thrown by it for a moment or two. Um, but then I, I sat up and said, this is, this is reality. Different people experience their families in different ways. Um, I have a you know, a sister and brother who might be watching on the Zoom now. You know, we grew up in the same house, but in different houses. You know, we have different memories that may are, that each of which are probably self-serving. And so, when the privilege I had in writing the Galvin story is to be able to write about these um, these women's lives over decades, and also their brothers, and to see how their perceptions of their family change and how their the way they decide to relate to their family changes. Um, they, Lindsay. Uh, starts out wanting to leave um, and never come back. She ends up coming back and being the caregiver for her brothers. You know, Margaret it grabs her chance to escape the trauma and then feels uh, a certain amount of rejection and ambivalence about what happened. She feels a little locked out and that colors her relationship with her family going forward. And, and she decides once all the secrets spill out, that becomes further fuel for her to declare some boundaries and some independence, a little like um, like like Tara Westover in Educated. So I see two different models in in the book that I was really very pleased to be able to to portray year by year almost as they move through their lives. Yeah, I was I was so struck by that um, by um, their by the tracking of their different experiences and you know like if if you were if you were tracking them as a novelist and if this were fiction, I think a novelist might've come up with a very different response in each of those women as adults. And, or maybe a great novelist would have come up with exactly the response that, that happened. Um, but, you know, one of the things in having become, uh, you know, sort of a student of family secrets um, unexpectedly uh, is that, one of the things I've learned, especially in in the podcast, is that when we discover something is at least as important as what we discover, like what, how these things break over the course of our lives. I had a moment that really took me aback as I was 
researching and reporting and processing my own experience where I thought I had felt so betrayed by my parents um, initially. I felt like, how could you have kept this a secret? It's like such a fundamental human right to know if it's possible to know, to know where, you know, where we come from. And, and then at some point I realized what would have happened to me if I had learned this at 16 or at 23, what if my mother had blurted it out to me um, after my father died? When I, I mean, that was a time in my life where I was a hot mess of a human being. And I, I don't think I would have survived it. Um, I found out what I found out at an extremely stable time in my life, you know, when in a, in a, in a long time marriage and with a, with a, a, a child who was already 17 at the time I made this discovery, um, in a, you know, just in, in, in midlife, I had a lot of life behind me with, with a very solid foundation. And so it, I ended up feeling like I found out at a really miraculous moment where there was enough time, still enough people living who I might be able to learn something from. I also hear stories from people regularly who are making these kinds of discoveries and they're in their 80s. What do you do with that? Um, you know, with the time that's left and what there is to process. So I think it has, I think it has a lot to do with the, with the, with the when and not, and not only with the, with the what. I'm also reminded of something you said in your book, Danny, where you said that sometimes family secrets are, um, they're kept out of love. We're going to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of restless nights? 
Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm going to go into um, Q&A function here. What does Bob believe is the biggest obstacle to progress in the treatment of schizophrenia? Well, there have been some strides in early intervention, and a little bit of the stigma is gone now so that families aren't blamed for the disease. Um, there is family support now if you're lucky enough to have good health care. Um, so those have improved. But for a variety of reasons, it's just um, there's been very little movement on the pharmaceutical front. I mean, I came up in, 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 we all did in an era where when I, when you think about mental illness, I thought of it as a brain chemistry issue and that the idea was to, through hard work and trial and error and the right therapist and psychopharmacologist, you'd find the right pill that would perhaps help you become more functional. And that might be true for things like anxiety or depression, but, um, but schizophrenia is still working with the same basic drugs that the, the Galvin family uh, were treated with back in the late 60s and early 70s. And that part is hard. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is um, uh, some disappointing outcomes from the Human Genome Project. Instead of finding one big genetic issue that could be zapped with the drug, they found more than 100 potential variants that all have very limited effect size. So it's hard to know what gene to zap with a pharmaceutical drug. And then also you can't really test it on mice. You have to test it on humans, and that's risky and expensive. And then finally, the constituency can't really advocate for themselves the same way that people with um, 
cancer can, for instance. And so things are sluggish in all those fronts. I just found one for Danny that I think is really kind of great. Um, what questions would you ask your father and mother knowing what you do now? I would ask how conscious they were of um, what they were signing on for, what they were doing in um, in going to an institute and, and using donor sperm. Um, I'm fascinated by that time in re- reproductive medicine where so many people who wanted to be parents were deceived, though often with the best of intentions, um, by by the the doctors that they went to see who really believed it would be best if they forgot it ever happened. I wonder how closely they kept that knowledge in their consciousness. In Family Secrets, the tagline of every episode is the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I wonder which of those categories my parents fell into and what that meant for the three of us, what that meant for the way that we interacted with each other during my childhood. Hmm. Celeste would like to know, hi, Robert. Thanks so much for your amazing work, which I'm passing around to other psychiatry residents. What she wanted to know was, um, how did the Galvins react? What was the response? Well, there came a point a couple months before the book came out when People Magazine wanted to write a feature about the family and to put a small excerpt in it. And so I was I was getting on the phone with Amal saying, hey, can you meet a reporter? And and I that's that's when I said to myself, you know, I can't ask them to take time out of their day and to do all of this with, with a book they haven't even read. So a couple months before it came out, I did send advanced copies to them. And I think that there was first, there was in general, there was relief that I delivered what I said I would, which is something that that dealt with the tender and sensitive issues of their family, of the family secrets in a way that wasn't like rubbernecking, that that was tasteful. And that was really about the possible good that the family could do. And then there were individual uh, difficulties that some of them had with placement. You know, uh, this was a group portrait of a family with some people foregrounded and some people backgrounded. You know, I was here too at that dinner. Why Why wasn't I, you know, why didn't you talk to, why aren't my thoughts and feelings about that in there? And so I think that that is the inherent difficulty with, with journalism in general, but also with with intimately reported narrative journalism, that that the the reporter ends up being the one who makes the calls and and they they were kind enough to give up that control to to someone and trust in them. But then something amazing happened, which is Oprah's book club. And and uh, that kind of set everyone's mind at ease in the family about how this book would be received in the world. The last thing they wanted was to, for it to be something tawdry or, or something that would be kind of like a grisly, gross book. And so as soon as Oprah's book club accepted the book and started to flag the book, everyone, including myself, we all kind of you know, had a sigh of relief saying, we know we know that that it will be seen as a product with goodwill, and that was important. Did it alter their dynamics at all? I'm just curious. I mean, I think it gave them jet fuel to do the things that they always wanted to do. Lindsay, the youngest, is now a, a very active advocate for rights for the mentally ill, for advocating for families who are dealing with acutely mentally ill family members. She's joined the boards of two different 
organizations and she's looking to join a third. She's very active. And then Margaret has doubled down on her artwork, has uh, pulled away for now from her regular family and is, and is, you know, sort of come close to her immediate family and her chosen family. And she is counseling people on how to move through trauma and in, in her own one-on-one way. Um, these are things that I think they were on their way to doing. If you've read to the end of the book, these are things they've wanted to do for a while, but, but the book has sort of given them permission to do it. It's done. I hope I'd like to think on a good day that it's done that, that thing that Bessel van der Kolk talked about, that it, it's about, it, it's, it's written the thing that they couldn't write themselves so that they can feel that the story is somewhat complete and they can go to the next chapter. And Bob, isn't, isn't there the next generation, um, the grandchildren who, I mean, that, that was one of the things that when I said I, your book made me cry, that's, that, that was, I can identify that as a place where it really, it really did. I, I, the, the idea that this is, a, I mean, one of the things about family secrets is when you can actually own your story, you know, you own the whole thing and all of its messiness and all of its complexity. And that was something that, and, and you can't do that when it's a secret. When it's a secret, all it is is toxic poison leaking over everything and creating all sorts of behaviors in ways that people can't, you know, they don't even know why they're behaving in the way that they are. And so the fact that this was so in the open, ultimately, in this family is also it would seem to me what allowed those grandchildren to um, start owning it as well. Yes, but I, I hope I also hit it hit it some of the mixed blessing of that. That Lindsay was so interested in not hiding things, so interested in transparency, wanted her children to know so much that they ended up assuming some of the burden she carried and and felt a little scarred themselves. So I, I was, you know, it it never gets simple. It, it might get better, but it definitely it doesn't get wrapped up in a bow. Although there was a very lovely little moment at the end with, with Lindsay's daughter that I won't reveal here. Before I go to Danny, you know, that reminds me of a, a question that I didn't ask you, but that has to do with the idea of at any given time, I think when people are keeping secrets, um, Danny, you actually cautioned against this. You said, we shouldn't fall, we shouldn't be guilty of presentism. We shouldn't hold people in the past accountable to present day standards of moral and ethical behavior because they were probably doing the best they can and they were doing as they were counseled. So the Galvins may have been, you know, uh, sort of behaving the way they thought they were supposed to behave. Your parents probably thought it was in your interest to keep this stuff a secret. I'm very interested in how, and you both wrote with tremendous compassion about your respective families, one that you were reporting on and one that was your own. How did you manage to drum up that kind of compassion? Were were there previous versions where you were kind of angrier, Danny, and you kind of had to hit select all, delete? And, you know, Bob, were there, you know, moments where you held out the matriarch Mimi with with more contempt and then kind of toned it back? Just curious. Because transparency, of course, now seems like the right and ethical thing to do. But as Bob was pointing out, that can also backfire. We don't know if, you know, obviously you want to err on the side of sharing. I mean, transparency is good, but it can have its, you know, too much could also be harmful. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, for for, for me, I did hit control, uh, whatever that thing is. Select all, all delete. delete. <laughs> like, yeah, but for two, two, 200 pages um, because... Um, 
I didn't yet have the necessary distance. You know, there, there's a very, very slight, but very, very necessary distance between myself and the story as I was telling it. And I think one of the gifts of, 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 of writing the book is that I developed more and more ever deepening compassion for both of my parents as I was writing it, because my reporting was leading me to these places where I, I understood what it must have been to be um, an infertile childless couple in the early 1960s and in their milieu and the, and the, the shame and the, you know, the distress of that, it just, it felt, it, it must've felt to them like the absolute end of the world. And so when you are faced with the absolute end of the world, you know, you, 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 you take des- desperate measures and I'm sure this felt like a desperate measure to them, but the gift was, and I think I do, I do write this in the book we don't often have the need or um, the desire or the circumstances to really be able to empathically imagine our parents as people, aside from being our parents, who they were before us. We just don't do it. There are parents and that's just not something, it's not a place where we go. And I had to go there in order to be able to walk with them like walk that walk with them through that process and that was that was a great gift the, the here i think there are a lot of parallels with with the part of the work that i was doing to try to discover the lives of mimi and her husband don uh the parents in the book because it, it, there was archival work and there were interviews and then there was you know really really um uh, deep speculation about what what their challenges might have been, and then interrogating those speculations to try to report them out. Um, the the mother Mimi was still around as I was reporting. She she died in the middle of my work, but the father had died close to twenty years earlier. Many of the children started out in my early conversations had many critical things to say about their mother. She was in a lot of denial. She preferred the sick children to the well ones. She put us in harm's way. But um, I, I was on high alert at that time because uh, I feel like mothers get a really raw deal in nonfiction and in fiction when you write about families. And I didn't want to necessarily run to her as a scapegoat. And sure enough, the more I talked with everyone, the more uh, I saw that um, over time they understood the subtleties of what she was dealing with. And also she was the one who was dealing with it. The father who everyone had put on a pedestal actually wasn't so great. And Mimi, who had her hands dirty making lots and lots of decisions, some of them bad, some of them good, you know, she wasn't so bad. And and I wanted to to get at that ambiguity and also avoid the presentism. I mean, the the options this family had, like the options your parents had, were very, very narrow. And the stigma that your parents were dealing with and that this family were dealing with were, you know, considerable. We'll be right back. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Danny, I, I liked a question that I saw here for you, which is um, from Tom. Did inheritance, which, which solves the secret, make you look at your earlier books any differently? Oh, that's a great question. I know. Um, yeah, it's really a good question. Yeah. Well, first of all, it made me revisit them, which, you know, you really don't necessarily want to revisit like a first novel that you wrote in 1990. You know, I, it's 
but I did, not for the faint-hearted. And what I feel reading my earlier work, I, I wondered at first whether inheritance would render all of my earlier work moot in some way. Like, you know, it, like I, I had that kind of strange fear of, well, are those books now somehow inauthentic because I didn't know. Um, and I wrote a great deal about my father, a great deal about my parents, um, a great deal about secrets. Um, but I was missing this essential piece. I actually end up feeling like not all of them, I mean, not the early novels, but they're more interesting to me now in a certain way, because every book is, uh, I mean, certainly memoirs, most of all, is like holding time still within the covers of a book. This is, this is all I know now. It's going into this, this story. And I've always known that, which is why I've written multiple memoirs. But now I look back and I think, wow, that really is all I knew in 2010. And that was all I knew in 1998 and so forth. And so it actually makes for a really interesting um, kind of body of work. So, someday I may try to do something with that, like annotate them or like just because there this this past summer, I recorded the audiobook of Slow Motion, which is my first memoir that came out in 1998. It's never been an audiobook, so I I was recording it and I had to stop so many times in the studio just stunned by a sentence that I just read, realizing how much I knew, how much subconsciously was right there. So that's kind of thrilling in a way. They don't feel like like I was mistaken. They just feel like that's what I knew then and this is what I know now. If you wrote an essay about that, I just want to say I'd be here for that. I would read it. No, really, like just reviewing what the things that sort of jump off the page like crickets now that sort of tell you that you were dropping yourself clues. And if you annotated an early book to have it on audio would be fun too. Like, hey, hey, hold the phone. Wait, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we, we 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 need two narrators. I was just going to say the the anxiety Danny uh, narrate translator like the Keegan Peel. <laughs> like I'm not doing the right, but you know what I mean. Oh, this is nice, Robert. When I read a book like yours, I always think about uh, Janet Malcolm's assertion that journalism is always an act of betrayal. Did you ever have a moment of doubting what you were doing? Did it affect your decisions in you were writing as you were writing or in writing? You know, there there is a question of who are you working for, right? And and I I very specifically am not an advocacy journalist journalist. I, I write books that are that reviewers seem to use the word empathy a lot, but I, I find my the way I look at em, the word empathy is you know a certain amount of intimacy and and the ability to walk in someone's shoes, but that's different from advocacy. And and I'm right up against the line the entire time. So I kind of live in that in that Janet Malcolm world where where some people might wonder, am I going to be betrayed by you? And and I never make that promise that I will never betray them because I am, after all, independent and I am not working for them. And so that's tough. It's a tough thing to do. And and it often means uh, that some people are just going to say no. They're not going to do it. And 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 in moments when I like to laugh at myself, I think like I'm journalists are like vampires like they only come where they're invited in like they can't just like barge into the house someone actually has to let them in and um 
And, and that's why I was so tentative with this family. I said, let's take, let's take months. Let's let me get on the phone once a week with a different member of the family and speak in an open-ended way about what you might expect from a book like this. And we'll all know one way or another uh, at the end of 10 weeks, you know, whether this is possible or not. And if it isn't possible, I'll move on and do something else. And, and you have to be ready to walk away that way. Danny, I'm going to end it. I think we have two minutes. So I'm going to end it with you. I'm going to take the liberty of summarizing a number of the questions here, which are kind of more comments than questions, but there's a theme running through them. A lot of people are saying, I was conceived by a sperm donor, or I do you know anything about sperm donation laws in Georgia in the 1960s, all sorts of like very specific things. I'm wondering how much you've become, I can ask both of you this question, you know, but how much you've become people's confessors. It's, very, it's an awesome responsibility to take on. And maybe um, what kind of repository of information you've become and you know, what kind of function you serve for people now in this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't have imagined what happened when, when, when this book came out. And, and, it, and it happened from day one, from the very first event that I did, where I looked around at the room and I thought, who is everybody here? This is not my usual literary demographic. There were there were old men and there were middle-aged couples and there were young people and there were people crying before I even opened my mouth. Um, this period of time that we're in regarding people discovering everything that we're discovering because of the one-two punch of easy, accessible DNA testing plus the internet has meant that there's, there's a huge number of, of people who are trying to navigate all of these questions. Can I find anything out? Um, What are the laws? Um, Do I have any rights? And yes, I mean, I, I feel very much activated, you know, like, like I began two years ago feeling like I would never really become polemical about this and I would stay on the literary side of things, but I, I do and have become somewhat polemical about the state of the secrecy and the lack of regulation in this country, um, which I can't get into in two minutes, but it's just stunning the way that we um, are not like sort of prepared for th- this reckoning that we're in. I mean, I, I'm going to have to leave it at that, but um, but I will say to everyone who's listening who is grappling with these kinds of issues, you know this, I'm sure, but you are far from alone, and there are a lot of there are a lot, a lot of resources and, and, and more, more every day. We'll be back with season five of Family Secrets, beginning April 1st. of endless diets and weight loss struggles it's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results introducing smart metabolic burn from brain md your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat imagine burning fat balancing glucose levels and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks this unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula berberine which targets abdominal fat and oea which curbs your appetite with just two capsules a 
day. Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.